Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. If you can uh, open, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 2. We are jumping back into our study in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as I'm getting ready to read, I'm going to ask Robin, would you mind, could you run back to my seat and grab my bottle of water? I forgot it. And I can feel I will probably need it. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV. It'll be up on the screens. It's also in your booklet. Thank you very much, Robin. Uh, it's in your booklet as well, and you can follow along in your Bible. This will be us jumping back into our series on the Gospel of Mark uh, that we've entitled Jesus, the King Who Came to Die. So Mark chapter 2, hear now the word of God. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, whenever you have a story, one of the elements you have to have is conflict. And all history even though it's based on actual events, is also a good historian is telling a story. And Mark is doing that in his gospel. And it, because historians have to take, they can't tell everything. They have to take uh, out of the stories of what happened to shape and help us understand what went on and why it was important. And that's what Mark is doing. And so he's got a plot for the story of Jesus. And this plot includes conflict. And we've already seen conflict between Jesus and the devil, Jesus and demons, but we're also beginning to see conflict between Jesus and religious leaders. And I bring this up because we're now actually beginning for five straight stories, all of them in Mark's gospel, from here at chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 6. They are all stories of conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders up in Galilee. They're going to cover a variety of topics. We might think that they're about something else, but they are all really united by the theme of conflict. They probably aren't even in a chronological order anymore because that's not what Mark is getting at. What he's saying is, is Jesus is up there ministering in Galilee, and this is the kind of thing that went on. There are these stories of conflict. And actually, 
when we finally get there, when you get near the end of the gospel, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem and we're going to have a whole series of conflict stories there, letting us know it doesn't matter whether he's in Galilee or whether he's in Jerusalem, he is in conflict with the very leaders who ought to be pointing the people to Jesus. They are actually in conflict with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to be kind of doing here, and it's going to help us understand and move the story along. And this first conflict deals with the Son of Man, Jesus. He's going to use that title for himself and his relationship to sin and how he handles sin. So let's dive in. Now the setting in the story this week is Jesus is back in Capernaum and there are crowds there. So notice he's again entered the town. And if to, to kind of remind us of what we were seeing in chapter 1, we had a whole series of stories that Jesus would come in, he would start to preach, the sick would come to him, and what would Jesus do when the sick were brought to him? He would heal them. And then when he would heal them, what starts to happen? Crowds start to gather. And you remember he even he went off where the disciples are so oblivious, he goes off to be by himself to pray, and the disciples are like, hey, you may not know, but there's a huge crowd down there waiting for you. And Jesus is like, we got to go to another area now. And he goes off, and he heals the leper, and he tells him, don't tell anybody. But what does the guy go do? Tells people. And Jesus, once again, we're told he can't even go into the villages anymore. Um, he has to stay out in the lonely places. Well, now he's come back to Capernaum, and it seems like things would have, have calmed down, and Capernaum is going to be his base. It actually refers to it here as uh, the people heard he had come home. So even though he grew up in Nazareth, he's now either got a home or he's working out of Peter and Andrew's home, but, but Capernaum is going to be his base for ministry. But once the crowds hear that Jesus is back, they all start showing up. They are there, and we're going to keep seeing this dynamic in the gospel. But what's interesting is, in our American mindset, we're going to have to struggle as we try to enter into this story because we react to the entire story in certain ways that are very different than how they did. When we hear there's a crowd gathering, to us, that's immediately a positive thing. Well, this is awesome. The crowds are gathering around Jesus. But actually, the crowds in Mark are not really viewed very positively. For example, we are never told anywhere. You remember the very first thing we're told that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Mark is that he's preaching the kingdom of God, and he's telling people, repent and believe the good news. We are never once told that the crowds repent and believe the good news. And in fact, what we're going to see is, uh, and, and we're going to see this in just a minute, is very often they're presented as impeding access to Jesus. The crowds are in the way of what God is attempting to try and do. And that's because usually the crowds have their own agenda. We're going to see this over and over again. They're wanting one thing out of Jesus, and he's interested in something else. Very often, they, being very much like us, with this part we can identify with, they're interested in physical healing. They're interested in, we've heard that you can take, you know, if I give you one loaf, you can multiply it out and feed my family for weeks, right? They're very interested in that. Jesus has a different agenda, uh, and we're going to see that. And it's also going to be seen as we move through that the crowds are with Jesus until it becomes apparent that there's a cost to be with Jesus. And as soon as the cost of discipleship becomes apparent, the crowds are either out of there or, in fact, they actually turn on him. So we have these crowds, but we have to keep it in mind, and in fact, every local church has to keep it in mind, that we're required to strive for faithfulness, not for what gets the greatest number of people. Those two are usually not related in any kind of a way. The goal is what Jesus is actually going to be showing us here rather than what we might try to do. And so Jesus does not sacrifice the proclamation of God's word for numerical success, nor can any church. So that's kind of the setting. The group is there. They've got their own agenda. But what Jesus is doing is he's proclaiming the word. He is teaching them the word because that is his agenda. But it, then this event happens. And the event in the story is that a paralytic is brought 
to Jesus. So notice in verse 3 and 4, some men come, they're bringing a paralytic, and four of them are actually carrying them on his mat. Paralytics very commonly had a, a mat that was usually filled with straw. They had some poles attached to it, apparently, and they are bringing Jesus to him. Now, um, this is in line with what everybody else is wanting. The crowds are gathering around because they want Jesus to heal them, and they want to see Jesus heal people. But notice, when these four show up, we get something new that we haven't seen before, which is they show up, and what do they discover they can't do? They can't get to Jesus. The crowd's in the way. They can't even, because we were told, you can't even get to the doorway. They can't even get and shout towards him. They're stuck in the back. Um, so the crowd's in the way, and they can't do it. But then suddenly, we get this great twist in the story in verses 4 and 5, where we're told since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they, they go up to the roof, and then they start digging through the roof. So they don't give up uh, getting to Jesus because of the obstacles. We, we had a saying when I was in the Marine Corps, which is improvise, adapt, and overcome. That, that's what you're supposed to do. And that's exactly what these guys do. They get there. We can't get through the door. We're going to improvise, we're going to adapt, and we're going to overcome. Now, what that entails for them is go up to the roof, which was very common in the ancient world. People, you know, like we would say, well, how do you get to the roof? They had much lower structures. They did often go up there, and you oftentimes would even sit there. But what they have to do when they get there is they're going to have to dig through the roof. Now, the roof is not, you know, metal or asphalt or anything like that. For us, it's usually just sticks with mud put on it, and they would have to rebuild it virtually every year. But these guys say, we're going to go ahead and dig through the roof, the, the branches in the mud, and we're going to lower our friend down. So you picture you're sitting here in the meeting, and all of a sudden, dirt starts falling in, and then you see this guy getting lowered down in front of them. But what is important in the story is we're told, actually, and I love the way that Mark puts this in verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. Okay, now this is not speaking of even supernatural knowledge like we're going to see in a minute that he knows what's going on in somebody's heart. What it is telling us is Mark is describing for us what faith really is. Jesus has been calling for faith. This is the first time faith is used of somebody having faith in the gospel of Mark. And notice what it is. It's not them subscribing to certain beliefs, as important as that is, Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom, they do need to subscribe to that. It's not even uh, them saying certain things. Faith is that they don't let anything get between them and getting to Jesus. They know who Jesus is, they know that Jesus is who they need, and nothing, nothing is going to prevent them from getting there to Jesus. And so Mark is letting us know faith is more than simply mental assent. It's really a trust in Jesus that leads to bold, specific action. It's a recognition there is no plan B. Jesus is who I need. Jesus is where we've got to get. Now what's also interesting in the story as we're going to see is Jesus is sovereign. He's sovereign in every way, and he cannot be forced into a particular action, but Jesus likes faith. Trusting in the sovereignty of God is never an excuse for us saying, that's not fatalism, you know, oh, well, okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. It always calls forth faith, and Jesus always in the Gospels looks at faith likes faith, makes pronouncements regarding the faith. He's always calling people to faith. And so Mark here is letting us know, Jesus looked at these four guys and what they did, and he sees faith. And then that elicits a response from him. But the response is not what we expect. What do we expect, having read the Gospels, and knowing the story, what do we expect to be the next thing we read? Jesus to say, son, you're healed. But that's not what Jesus actually says. And what he says is what leads to the conflict. 
Because what Jesus says in verse 5 is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now see, why that's interesting is, notice here Jesus is being compassionate on the guy. He literally calls him my child, you know, my son. He he speaks to him with compassion, but if I were there and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, I would lean over and say, I don't think that's what he was looking for, Lord. I think the digging through the roof was for something else. You might not have noticed the guy's paralyzed. He can't get up. Isn't that honestly the way we respond? So see, why is it that Jesus says his sins are forgiven? Why is that the first place that Jesus goes? And then that's going to lead us. What's interesting is we would just be surprised that that's the first place Jesus goes. But this is actually what leads to the conflict, and it's what's at the center of the story. So why does Jesus go to forgiveness uh, of sins Um, when what's clearly there is a sickness. Why is he talking about forgiveness when what they're seeking is healing? And there's actually, I think, at least four things that are happening here in the story that are important for us to kind of grasp. And some of these, we have to kind of get out of our mindset, our way of looking at things, and go back to the way they've done it. Number one, Jesus is doing this, and he begins with the forgiveness of sin because this is actually the far greater need. The crowds are always there. They've always got their agenda. We always come to the Lord with our agenda, but Jesus is rigorously going back to what is most important. So, and I don't blame the guy. If I were laying there as a paralytic, what is the foremost need on my mind? I'm thinking I want physical healing. That is what I'm after. And the fact is, these are important. Yet, the far greater need is the forgiveness of sin. And if we step back and we think about it for a moment, what good is it for me to be physically healed if I remain under my sin? What good is it to be physically healed and spiritually dead? What good is it to be right in my body and in a wrong relationship with God? And so it's not that Jesus is not interested in the physical healing, but he is setting a priority. He gives priority to the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, not to physical healing and miracles. The priority for Jesus is always the proclamation of the word because that drives back to what the far greatest need is. What people needed was not a healer, they needed a redeemer. What they needed was not just to be touched in body, rather they needed the gospel. So that's number one. Number two, we have to understand in their culture that sin, sickness, forgiveness, and healing were linked together. And this actually goes back to the Old Testament scriptures. I'm putting up just a few verses here. Notice in Psalm 103, this verse is pretty familiar. Uh, You know, this is the, the one that's telling us to praise the Lord and forget not all his benefits because he forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. So notice they go together. And rabbis, we have writings from back then that said, because of this very verse, well, therefore, if one's going to be healed of their diseases, they have to first be forgiven of their sins. Psalm 41, verse 4 says, I said, O Lord, have mercy on me, heal me, for I have sinned against you. There the psalmist seems to be indicating could be that there's a physical healing that is needed, but he's relating and saying, I need you to heal me because I've sinned, which means I have to, I I recognize that somehow there's this relationship here. And then finally, notice in Jeremiah, and there's a number of these verses where Jeremiah says, oh Lord, have mercy on me. Uh, I mean, excuse me, return faithless people. I will cure you, you of your what? backsliding. So healing here is not even a physical ailment. They have a spiritual sickness. They are backsliding. They are turning from God. But being cured of that, being healed of that means they're no longer turning away from God, but rather they are walking with him. So there was this link in the culture, and it's there in the scripture. And this, of course, is because sickness only exists because of the fall and because of sin. If we had not fallen in the garden, there would be no sickness, 
there would be no death. But because there was a fall, because there was sin, there is sickness. Now, it's important to recognize that this does not mean that individual sickness can always be traced back to some individual specific personal sin. But it does mean that ultimately sickness and sin are related in some way. Now, the problem happened is in Jesus' day, these verses had been read in such a way that if I see somebody laying there as a paralytic, what do I think? Mm, you did something. That's why. In fact, we can read in John chapter 9 where even the disciples came to Jesus and said, so Lord, there's this guy over here and he was born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents? Which is pretty interesting because number one, you're assuming because the parents sinned that he's born blind. Number two, the other option is he sinned before he was even born while he was in the womb. But what's not there as an option in their mind is neither. But in fact, what does Jesus say? Uh, neither. The question is wrong. You're, you're making an assumption that cannot be done. I'm not going to deal more with this right now. If you, if you tune into After Hours on Tuesday, I'm actually going to go through kind of the topic of sin and sickness and healing, a biblical view of sin, sickness, and healing. And I'll talk a little bit more about some of that and try to unpack it. But there is this relationship, and in the minds of the culture, all the people sitting around already kind of have this. If this guy's here, there's something to do with sin. But the third reason I think Jesus is doing it is forgiveness and healing of sin is at the heart of the new covenant. So again, forgiveness and the healing of sin. Number of scriptures we could do, but Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a very famous uh, passage referring to God bringing forth the new covenant. And God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. So notice God here is speaking of the cleansing and purification from sin. But in verse 26, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. God is saying what you need is a heart transplant, which they couldn't even do back then. But God said, I'm going to do a heart transplant. You've got a heart of stone. That's why you're sick with sin. I'm going to heal it, and this is what is going to lie at the heart of the new covenant. Well, we've already been told from the very beginning, Jesus is here announcing the kingdom has come. I am the king. I am bringing the kingdom. The new covenant is coming to you. And because the new covenant is coming to you, that means what this is about is healing from sin. You need a new heart. I'm here to give a new heart. You need the Spirit to be put within you. The Spirit is going to come upon you. You need to be purified from your sin. That is what I am here to do. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would bring it up in this context. But then finally, and it does have to be recognized, sometimes sickness in the Scripture is specifically directly related to a specific personal sin. Now, I won't take the time to turn there, but for example, in James 5.16, we're told if you're sick, and it seems to be in the context, and you know that it's because of sin, you're to come and you're to call the elders of the church. They'll anoint you with oil. They will pray over you, and the Lord will forgive you and raise you up. And so there is this connection in a passage like James chapter 5. And again, in after hours, I'll talk a little bit more about it. So it is possible that Jesus is pronouncing that, in fact, this paralytic was experiencing something because of sin in his life. And there may be a direct link here. Now, we don't know that for certain, but it could be. Now, what's interesting as I, as I speak through this, if Jesus had said directly, son, I'm forgiving your sins because you are on this mat because you sinned and it had this physical consequence, we would be shocked. None of them would be. Our problem probably is you just dug through the dude's roof. Who's paying for that? Is that not the way we think about stuff? See, they had different problems. One of the commentators this week uh, made this, what I thought was a really insightful statement. He said, we're no longer scandalized by Jesus' announcement of forgiveness, which we take for granted. Well, of course God forgives sin, right? It is the hint that our sin brings physical consequences that causes us to stumble. 
We've got a very different problem than what they have because, see, they don't have a problem with thinking that sin had physical consequences. They have a problem with Jesus pronouncing forgiveness, as we're about to see. We have the opposite problem. Well, of course he's going to pronounce forgiveness. But what do you mean that it had this consequence? See, so this starts to let us see we have to be careful when we're reading the text because we bring in all kinds of modern assumptions that are very different than what they were dealing with. So notice there's an immediate reaction here, but again, it's not what ours would have been. It wouldn't have been, well, what are you talking about sin for uh, when what he wants is healing? The reaction of the scribes or the teachers of the law, whichever term you use, um, they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, this is the first time that the scribes personally appear in the story. They've been mentioned once before when the people heard Jesus' teaching and they were like, wow, this dude is powerful when he preaches. He's not like the scribes and the teachers of the law. They're going to appear a bunch of times in Mark's gospel, but it's always going to be negative with one exception where one scribe seems to be coming into the kingdom. But the rest of the time, it's negative, and so it's not surprising. Here they're appearing on the scene, and it's not good. Right off, rather than recognizing this is Messiah, he's announcing the kingdom, he's ushering in the new covenant, he's doing all this, their immediate response is, who does this dude think he is? What is, what, what is he talking about? Who can forgive sins other than God. Now, the reality is sometimes God did announce his forgiveness of sins through a prophet. For example, when David had sinned and Nathan came and rebuked him and David said, I have sinned, Nathan pronounced, the Lord has forgiven you. And notice here in verse 5, well, you can't see it right now, but in the previous verse, Jesus did not say at that moment, hold that thought, I forgive your sins. He just said your sins are forgiven. So it could be I'm being a prophet. I am simply announcing that the Lord says your sins are forgiven. So even that statement, however, to them is blasphemy. Because at a minimum, this guy's claiming to be a prophet on par with the Old Testament prophets. And this is actually the central issue in the story. It's not the healing of the paralytic. The central issue is who has authority to forgive sin? Who does this guy think he is? And we're going to see in just a minute, far from backing off, Jesus is about to double down on what he's saying. So the conflict is now kind of laying out. <clears throat> and notice Jesus is sitting there and in verse 9, uh, verses 8 and 9, immediately Jesus knows in his spirit because they're not saying anything. This is what they're thinking in their heart. But Jesus immediately displays divine insight, which might be another clue to them that he's reading their cards. They might have a question as to how does he know what's going on. But he displays this divine insight into their inner thoughts. So it's proof that he's at least a prophet of God. He, he knows, like Nathan knew what David had done, Jesus knows what's going on in their heart. He's giving proof positive that he's at least a prophet. But Jesus doubles down here on what he says. Um, I actually love, Linda and I were watching one of the current episodes of the TV show, The Chosen, and Jesus was in Nazareth, and, he's, and it's, it's in the famous episode where he reads from Isaiah's gospel, and he says, the scripture's fulfilled in your hearing today. And everybody starts saying, what, what do you mean? And one of the friends steps up and says, well, I think what Jesus meant, and Jesus stops him and says, I think what I said was very clear. <laughs> okay, that's kind of what Jesus is doing here. If you didn't understand, let me even double down on what I'm saying. So he says, look, you're asking this question. Well, what do you think is easier to say? Is it easier for me to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for me to say, rise up and walk? Now, in one sense, it's obviously easier to say your sins are forgiven, right? In one sense, it is. 
But in reality, I would encourage us to step back and think, what actually costs more? Jesus can say a word and heal this guy in just a moment. What is the forgiveness of sins? What is son your sins are forgiven going to cost? Death. Bearing the wrath of God. There is one profound sense. It's far easier to say, son, rise up, take your mat, go home. But that's not what the teachers of the law are thinking about. What they're thinking is, hey, this guy can say this, but can he back it up? And so Jesus is actually offering to prove to these teachers of the law his authority to heal and to forgive sins. And so notice, this is where he drives home what the story is really about. In verses 10 to 12, Jesus makes this astounding statement. Jesus' favorite title for himself is not Messiah. It's not some of the other terms that we would use. His favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. He's going to use it 14 times in Mark's Gospel. But this is the very first time. And he only uses it twice in the first half of the Gospel. Here and in another one of these conflicts regarding the Sabbath. And in both cases, he's making a claim to authority. Now, the reason he, he likes Son of Man is because they're not sure who Son of Man is, okay? So he doesn't say, I'm the Messiah, and therefore the Messiah has authority to do this. He's using a statement, a term that they don't already have a bunch of preconceptions about. And he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So notice he doesn't say, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority to heal because they wouldn't have had a problem with that. What he says is, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, which is the far deeper need and problem and the very thing that the scribes and the Pharisees are going to struggle with, the very thing they're going to have an issue here. So Jesus here is claiming authority not just to say God has forgiven. Notice he doesn't say the Son of Man has authority to pronounce that the Father has forgiven sin. No. I am here, and I am telling you, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin. In myself, of myself, I have authority over sin. Now, that's a bold statement. I mean, again, he has doubled down. But he does this, and he's, then he turns to the paralytic, and he says, Rise up, take your mat, and walk. But notice he's doing this. He proves his authority to personally forgive sin by displaying his authority to heal the paralytic. That's what he is actually driving at with them. Because what he's stating is, when I proclaim that I have authority to forgive sin, I'm making a claim of deity. I'm making a claim that I have divine prerogative. If I say sin is forgiven, sin is forgiven. And if I say you are healed, you are healed. That is the authority of the Son of Man. And notice at the end of it, the outcome, remember the teachers of the law have stated that Jesus is doing what? He's blaspheming, which is cursing God's name. But what's the outcome of the story? What does the crowd actually start doing? Praising God. So everywhere along the way, the teachers of the law can actually recognize that what they're thinking is wrong, okay? If this were blasphemy, it would not lead to praise and worship, but it has led to praise and worship. If it were blasphemy, he couldn't heal the guy, but he does heal the guy. If, if he were not a, at least a prophet of God, he wouldn't know what's going on in their hearts. But he does know what's going on in their hearts. And then he tells them, and I want you to know I'm more than a prophet of God. I have authority to forgive sin. But in at least four different ways, it's been shown to them. So this is what's going on in the story. Now, how do we apply this today? What does this mean for you and me? There's many things that we could, we could talk through. Again, I'll talk about... Uh, physical healing and such in the after hours. But I want to ask two basic questions. Number one, am I getting close to Jesus no matter what? Notice here these four friends. 
They're coming in, and we're told, this is the first time in the gospel, that Jesus sees faith. And what he sees is this exhibition of great, resilient faith. That these four friends know that Jesus can do the impossible, and they're going to get close to him no matter what. And what that tells you is that they realize they don't, they don't have another option. They don't have another plan B. How many of us have ever been to a situation where you try to get somewhere and then you realize like, oh, I can't find parking. There's too much of a crowd. We're going to go to a different restaurant. We're going to go do this thing instead. It's too much hassle. We've all been there and done that, right? But see, that's not an option for them. There's not, well, you know, let's go to the other healing rabbi down the street. No, there's one of one. It's either we get to Jesus or we don't get what we need. Now, they may even not be fully correct in what they need, but I want us to see they have this bold, resilient faith. And that faith is not merely intellectual. It produced definitive action. They pick their friend up. They carry him off to Jesus. They don't just say, hey, wouldn't it be great if somehow you could get there? They got to get the friend there. Their faith's not fair weather. It perseveres through all the difficulties, carrying him through town, going to the roof, digging through, lowering the friend down. So the question for us, when we see this is a picture of faith and what faith looks like, that prompts questions for me. When I am uh, letting other things take priority over getting close to Jesus, what that oftentimes is, is that's a sign that I don't realize my desperate plight apart from him. See, if they stop and say, well, there's too much crowd, let's go back home, then what they're saying is, is I have another resource. I have another option. So that leads to the question for us, do I see my desperate situation apart from Christ? The great temptation we face today, very often, even in the evangelical church, is I have my life. What I want is if I can get a little Jesus as icing on the cake, won't that make life better? That's not the gospel. That's not the kingdom. The gospel and the kingdom is we have nothing apart from him period in him we live and move and have our being i am the vine you are the branches apart from me you can do what nothing but we find that very difficult to believe and that's why we oftentimes because of that when i don't see that then when obstacles rise up i stop pressing in because, well, you know, if the Lord wanted me to get there, the obstacle wouldn't be there. So think about it. Whatever my need is, think about whatever need you may be sitting here this morning. We've all got a variety of things that we're facing and we're looking at. It may be a struggle with sin in my own life. It might be emotional struggles that I'm walking through. It might be family issues. There's a struggle in the marriage. There's a struggle in a relationship with a child or extended family member. It might be that it is physical healing. It might be I'm facing a real decision and I need guidance from God. Wh whatever it is, think through and you could keep listing these things. Where are you going to find the solution to that? Because see, if I think, well, I can try Jesus, but I tried getting there. And it was kind of tough. There was a crowd around. I couldn't get in. I even started digging through the roof. But, you know, that was too much hassle. Then, friends, we'll go somewhere else. But faith looks and says, no, there is no plan B. Whatever it is. So I would encourage us, based on this, to recognize we are in as desperate a plight as that paralytic was laying there. And so we have to make getting close to Jesus via the word, prayer, gathering for worship with God's people, all these ways, we have to make that an absolute priority for ourselves. Because if all the enemy has to do is throw a couple of obstacles in the way 
and I said, well, you know, I tried. Then we never come in contact with Christ. And we see this kind of thing over and over and over in the gospel, where the people that we remember their names, you know, whether it's this guy or it's Zacchaeus or it's the centurion who sends the people, they go out of their way. They've got resilient faith. They are after Christ because they believe the reality. I have no other hope. Do we recognize that? Because see, if we don't, then we can be like the crowds. The crowds like to gather around. And you remember when Jesus in John chapter 6, we won't do this in Mark's gospel, but Jesus preaches a very hard sermon where he says, you know, you all are here because I fed you yesterday and you want more bread, but what I'm telling you is you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. That's where you're going to find life. And what does the crowd say? This guy's a nut job. I mean, that's pretty much what it is. We're out of here. And then Jesus turns to the 12. And what does he say? I'm sorry, that was a really bad idea. I should have rethought that sermon. What does he say to him? You guys going to leave too? And what does Peter say? Where else would we go? That sounded kind of crazy, Lord. <laughs> I don't get it. We don't have a plan B. There's nothing else. It's you. When I understand what you're doing, it's you. When I don't understand what you're doing, it's you. When I understand what you're doing and I really don't like it, it's you. Where else would I go? That's what faith looks like. So is that the kind of faith? See, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to prompt and work in us in 2023. So think through whatever things you've got and whatever needs and then ask, Lord, what, what's preventing me from getting to you for that? Second thing, and we'll come to the Lord's table with this, is am I embracing the forgiveness of sin in Christ? We think of this story very often as being about the healing of the paralytic, but actually the central issue is who can forgive my sin? That's really what the story is ultimately about. So have I ever truly come to Jesus to confess my sins and receive forgiveness? I don't take for granted just because somebody comes to a church gathering that they have. Have you actually recognized and realized you and I, our deepest issue is that we need forgiveness of sin. More than anything else going on in our life, we need to have our sin forgiven. If you have never done that, I urge you to look to Christ, cry out to Christ, say, Lord, I am a sinner. Don't be a paralytic laying on the mat and say, that's not my problem, Lord. Now, that is our problem. That's what we need. But even if you are a believer, can I tell you, we lie around under a weight of guilt and not really experiencing the forgiveness of God in our life. So much of what goes on in our lives is traced back to us having unresolved guilt. It includes physical sickness. It includes emotional struggles. It includes destructive behaviors that we do that are all out of not having a clean slate before God and not recognizing that that slate is clean. What we're going to do is we're going to be coming to the table and we're going to actually be doing Psalm 32 together in just a moment. And I want us to hear, because we're going to hear David's cry and we're going to let his words be our words. But I want us to hear and understand the same Jesus that's in this story still speaks with tender compassion. Whatever your sin, whatever your struggle, no matter how long you've been walking with Christ, we need to embrace the fact at this table that Jesus still looks and says, son, daughter, your sin is forgiven. And let that resonate at the deepest part of our soul. Because if we don't, when we keep that on us, 
You can, you can take it to the bank. It is going to produce sickness and stress and struggle and emotional issues and destructive behaviors and relational conflict. It's going to produce all of that. So we need to receive healing and receive it from here uh, at the table. So what we're going to do, if you can stand up, together we're going to do Psalm 32. And I remind us that Psalm 32, tradition tells us, this is David's psalm after he had confessed his sin regarding Bathsheba and he's been forgiven. And so as we pray this, I want us, we're praying it out of faith and receiving the Lord's word. But I also want us to consider how David describes what it is like before he confesses and after he confesses. And then we will come to the Lord's table. So let's pray this uh, psalm together. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. You can go ahead and be seated. Brothers and sisters, if that is your prayer, if you freely and openly confess your sin and you bring it to the Lord right now, I invite you to the table to receive from the Lord. And I again, I encourage you as we come to this table, uh, there's a danger that we can face that we can make this just purely some little ritual. This is not that. This is the Lord's table. I want you to ask if the Holy Spirit is bringing sin to your mind, if there are these areas, let us, let's ask the Lord to say, Lord, I want to not only know that it's true, I want to experience in the depth of my soul you forgiving the guilt of my sin. Release me from this that I may be healed. For brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and the same way after supper he took the cup and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven drink from this all of you in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes. Lord, we humbly confess that our ways are not your ways, nor are our thoughts your thoughts. So often what we long for and desire is of little value in reality, while too, true treasure is of such little worth in our eyes. And even worse, we are humbled to find our desires and actions are directly contrary to your will and your word. And therefore, with David, we have confessed our sin and we acknowledge the rightness of all your ways. Brothers and sisters, take and eat the body of our Lord.
Lord, at this table, we come to you freely. For with you, there is forgiveness and full pardon. We are so grateful that we do not have to hide our sin nor live with crushing guilt of our failures, for through your blood we are forgiven and free. How blessed we are to receive this forgiveness and to know that rather than hiding from you, we can find in you our place of refuge, protection, and deliverance. Brothers and sisters, take the cup of the Lord. Let's stand together, and I'm going to conclude with prayer and a benediction, and I encourage you to cry out to the Lord for this full healing and for the Holy Spirit to fasten this to our hearts. Lord, we thank you for this table of forgiveness and healing. Here we have received fresh pardon and cleansing for sin. And now we ask you for your healing power to be released in our body and our soul. Father, heal our minds so that we might perceive and embrace the truth. Lord, heal our emotions that we might feel your love and forgiveness and be filled with the courage of the sons and daughters of God. Spirit, heal our hearts desires, and wills, that we might hunger and thirst after righteousness, and that we would be repulsed by sin and evil. Our God, we pray that you would heal our bodies, that we might use them to more fully serve you. Lord, this day we offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. Lord, we ask that by your power we would now arise and go forth and spread your blessings wherever our feet may trod this week. We ask all of this in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And God's people say, Amen. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Therefore, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.